we collect coffee mugs. I thought it would be fun each and every morning to take you on a tour of the coffee mug of the day. And this morning I'm, I'm proud to present Baby Yoda. And it's a pleasure drinking from him. And it's a pleasure having you um, with us as we are here right at the beginning of our study and walk through the book of Revelation. And I'm going to read our passage this morning. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 1. We're going to read verses 4 through 9. And so um, let's, let me read it. We'll pray and then we'll dive in for this morning. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we just pray in these few short minutes you would bring alive your word, that you would speak to us through it, and that this would be a season that we would get a clearer, more vivid picture and knowledge and encounter of you. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. This is a good opportunity in these verses to give us a little bit of a backdrop of what's happening that shapes the book or the circumstances from which John is writing. So oftentimes it's easy to forget that Revelation is not like Nostradamus. It's not a fortune-telling book. It's not a secret code. It is an actual letter written in apocalyptic imagery that is given to a specific people in a specific place in a specific time. And those are, of course, the seven churches. Now, we're going to be looking at each of those seven churches in turn, the church in Ephesus and Laodicea and Smyrna and on and on in the coming chapters. But here we need to get a little bit of an understanding of what's going on, what's prompted John to write, what's John's circumstance. We think Revelation was probably written in about 90 AD, and John indicates that he is on the island of Patmos. And so you can still visit Patmos. It used to be in the Roman Empire, an ancient rock quarry. And it's where they sent prisoners that they really never wanted to see again. So John is most likely the last living apostle at this time. He, um, all of the apostles were martyred for their faith, um, except for John, uh, according to the church tradition. Actually, according to the church tradition, they tried to kill John. They tried to boil him alive in a pot of oil. It didn't, it didn't, um, didn't kill him. I don't know what was worse, getting killed or surviving that, but once it became clear they, that wasn't going to work, they sent him to this island of Patmos to basically rot away for the remainder of his days. And you can imagine he's going to be there. He's going to be breathing. You know, it's going to be like being exiled to somewhere in a Mad Max, you know, sort of apocalyptic um, 
you know, dystopian world. That's where John is. He's all by himself. He's breathing in this rock quarry. It's you have slaves who are working in the area, and here he is, just an old man, spending the last few years of his life. And you can imagine what that's like for him. But Jesus is going to appear to him here. Now we know the reason that that John is here on the island of Patmos in exile. It tells us in verse nine on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So this was a season in which the church, um, the church had all along been experiencing sporadic bits of persecution, but now persecution had become a an official decree of the empire, an official policy. This is most likely written during Domitian's reign, um, and and here what had been localized persecution became policy. And there were two points I think in particular, and we're going to see this in Revelation that were particularly pressing on the churches and threatening their witness. And one was this idea of emperor worship. Rome didn't care who or what you worshiped. It was a, it was a, um, it was a polytheistic culture. Um, you could worship anything and everything as long as at the end of the day, you acknowledge that Caesar was God, the ultimate authority. And oftentimes what they would do is they would bring Christians and everybody else in the city, they would gather them around and they would have a, a, a ceremony, a sacrifice where everyone would have to bow down to the emperor. And Christians obviously were refusing to do so out of conscience and they were being persecuted. They were being um, ostracized, sometimes killed, sometimes physically flogged, thrown into prison. One of the specific ways they were also being discriminated against was um, they were not allowed to buy and sell, to be a part of the local economies. You know, at the time, to be to 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 be a part of, say, to 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 make your craft. What let's say you you made shoes in the ancient world, then there was a there was a guild or a, or a trade union, so to speak, of guys who worked on shoes. Okay, cobblers. Well, each of these guilds, these unions, had a local god. It was kind of their patron god that you had to kind of bow down and those sorts of things, too. And so when it became clear Christians weren't going to give allegiance to anyone but Jesus Christ, they were excluded. So they weren't able to buy and sell and support their families. And these are all the sorts of things that are swirling right around that time that John is writing. John himself had been a victim of this persecution. And it's interesting the way John frames this opening couple of paragraphs and how he wants to sort of establish the, the boundaries and parameters of their situation because it was a bleak situation. You know, if, you know, Christians in our current culture are feeling the squeeze, are we not, from various portions of society as we're marginalized, singled out, um, but, but, Nothing, nothing, not even close compared to what these churches were walking through. And the first thing that John wants to do, and he wants to do for us in this season of our life, is to give us what I would call a Trinitarian assurance. Okay, look at verses uh, four, five, and yeah, four and five. He 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 talks about grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come. Now here he's talking about God the Father. And he mentions him again, verse 8, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, 
who is and who was and who is to come. So there's God, God the Father is the beginning and the end. He is, there's nothing he's not aware of, nothing he's not in control of, nothing that, that passes out from under his sight. And then he goes on and talks about the seven spirits who are before the throne. Now we're going to find out in the Revelation that seven is a magic number. No, seven is a is a is a number of completeness. It's a it's a symbolic number. And so the idea is to talk about is to denote this idea that the the fullness of God's spirit is dwelling with within that trinitarian framework. And so he's just simply saying God the Father is positioned around you. You're being filled, okay, with the Holy Spirit who being sent by God is God. And then from Jesus Christ, look at verse 8, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Who's in charge here? John wants to remind us, Jesus. Jesus is the one on his throne. He is the faithful witness. Remember, he was martyred as well. He's reminding them of that. He's also reminding them of that when he talks about him being their brother in verse 9 and partner in the tribulation. And so, so John's saying not only is, is the Trinity aligned and on your side, but Jesus has walked through the very same things that you have walked through. I am walking through the very same things that you are walking through. And John seems to be saying, let me remind you who is really on the throne. Let me remind you that Jesus, while he was martyred and killed, he is the firstborn of the dead. He has been raised to life. And in fact, he is reigning. Now, one of the things that John wants to direct them to is verse seven, is to remember that in order for them to be faithful in this day, in order for you and I to be faithful in this day, we, lift, we have to live life in light of that day. And that's verse seven. It says, behold, he, meaning Jesus, is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him and even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him even so amen so here john's reminding us that jesus is on his throne he's building his kingdom he's building his dominion and that he is going to one day come back in ultimate fulfillment of what he has promised he is going to set everything aright now we have to ask, is that good news or is that bad news? Well, it depends if this king is coming to judge you or is this king coming to welcome you? And here, he John shows us there, there are really, there's ultimately two groups of people in all the history of humanity. And there are, there's one group, John says in verse seven, that when Jesus comes, it will be a day of great mourning, a day of great wailing, not of repentance, okay, but of weeping and gnashing of teeth, of those who pierced him, of those who've lived in defiance of him, those who've rebelled against him. And so, and look at the wording here. It says, um, all the tribes of the earth will wail, or literally mourn. Um, it'll be like someone has died when Jesus returns because it's the end of not just life temporally, but life eternally. And there's gonna be a reckoning and it's gonna be a terrible day. But, okay, for another group of people, it's going to be the most amazing news ever, the most amazing event ever. And that's, and that's for those who belong to the family of God. 
So look at verse look at verse five. To him who loves us and has freed us by from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion and forever and ever. So in other words, those who belong to God, God has sent his son to shed his blood as a sacrifice for sins. He has elevated us to the status of not just servants, but as priests, people who are able to be in the very presence of God, in the presence of Jesus. And when that king comes back, for those who are part of God's family, it will be joyous. It will be rapturous. And which, when we talk about living today in light of that day, um, it's just, for Oaks, it's just increasingly important that we never forget what's at stake in this life. That this life is much, much larger than our creature comforts, our conveniences, or even our rights, or even our freedoms. Remember, John is writing, he had no freedoms, right? What's most important is, will we be with Jesus on that day? And are we leveraging every ounce and minute and energy of our lives now to call people into that kingdom? You know, there, there's, there's in Christian circles, there's a lot of talk about, how God is building his kingdom and renewing all things and that's right on but that's not good news okay if you are not a part of the family of God if you are not a loyal subject to the king and Jesus says the way that happens is not by you doing great things for the king it's by receiving the sacrifice of the king and his blood for you who made you a kingdom of priests that is what it means to be a part of the family of God, just receiving the free gift of his grace. So, so if you think about this, as, as we start to unfold the book of Revelation, this is just going to be an anchor point. It's a stake in the ground, a tent post, a marker on John's part to say, listen, here, church, churches, remember, regardless of what's happening here on the ground level, and it's hard, and it's difficult, and it's oftentimes torturous and painful and full of suffering and grief, remember that the Trinity is aligned on your behalf and that Jesus is reigning. He is on his throne. He's coming back to make all things new. And so praise God for your membership in his family, that you are now a priest and now leverage your life for eternal realities um, and the souls of people that are swirling around you and trust God. So that's what we have in Revelation 1, 4 through 9. Tomorrow, we're in Revelation 1, 10 through the end of the chapter, we're, we are going to get the clearest physical and spiritual script description of Jesus that we find anywhere in the Bible. And as a reminder, um, we are using this book by Scotty Smith, Unveiled Hope, as a companion piece to this study. I was just looking at it again yesterday. It is so great, so awesome. Order it off Amazon. You should be able to, to get a copy. There, there might even be PDF copies floating around the interwebs. I'm sure Scotty would not mind you um, reading, reading his book that way either. Let me pray for us, and let's jump into our day. Lord Jesus, regardless of how out of control, chaotic, and tumultuous things seem to be in our life, country, and world right now. They are anything but from your perspective. Um, Lord, make no mistake, you, you're making all things new, and sin does not please you. 
but you are not threatened by it. It's, it doesn't compete for your glory. Um, you are in charge and in control and on your throne, and we want to entrust ourselves to you and walk in faith today. We ask these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, see you guys.